This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Aspie was delighted to host General David Berger, Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. Brendan Nicholson speaks to General Berger about the US-Australia alliance, military strategy and the importance of interoperability, and how the Australian Defence Force and the Marine Corps can work more closely together. General Berger, welcome back to Australia and to Aspie. Thank you. are clearly a very busy man. You made a crowded visit to Australia just nine months ago, and you're back again with a packed schedule. How important to the United States and the Marines is the relationship between the Australian Defence Force and the US Marine Corps, and what do you hope to achieve here, and how important is interoperability with your Australian ally? I would say... I'm trying to recall, but I think this is the only place I've visited twice in less than a year. Gives you an indication yeah. how important. You use your time where it matters the most. Also, the speed, the number of changes that have happened since last April, very helpful to come back at this frequency and find out how's that viewed here. The relationship itself, longstanding, stronger all the time, and built on personal friendships and professional relationships that uh, you, know, you, can't, you can't replicate very easily. And the 100 years of working together, that's, that's a solid foundation. Well, how can the ADF and the U.S. Marine Corps work more closely together? And what can they do to develop complementary capabilities? As a Marine Corps, because we are sort of inherently joint we train, we operate alongside all the Australian Defence Forces, not just one. Where can we do more? Uh, I think both of us are headed in the same direction in terms of reassurance of allies and partners in the region and uh, deterring the, the main challenges to both of our countries. So from the deployments that happened to, uh, in, the, in the near region all the way to Australia, more of that. And more focused on uh, things like the modernization of both of our forces, which we're doing in parallel. Yeah. Your redesign of the Marine Corps uh, warfighting concepts brings a strong focus on keeping maritime choke points open to allow commerce to flow freely. In that context, a key moment in the war in Ukraine was the destruction of the Russian guided missile cruiser Moskva, uh, which was flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. The warship is believed to have been hit by two Neptune missiles fired from the Ukrainian coastline. It was about 60 nautical miles out to sea at the time. Is that the sort of operation you have in mind for your Marines? Lifting one scenario, uh, one, scenario one situation up as a representative, probably a difficult match to make perfectly. Uh, that said, I would, uh, I would agree with you that controlling key maritime terrain matters. Because not just commerce, but military, uh, maritime movement matters also. If you can't maneuver through that, then, then you're restricted. So I think for us, our contribution to what uh, the Joint Force has to do, keep controlling those key uh, maritime choke points, terrain features matters. And w- the attributes that we're after in force design allow us to do that. Look, at an ASPE conference last year, the futurist Jeffrey Becker 
described a military mindset where things continue to be done in a certain way because they've always been done in that way. And he warned that that imposed an inertia that could stop military organisations adapting fast enough to keep up with technological advances. Now, I hasten to add that the warfighting concepts you brought to the Marines would indicate that you're not encumbered by any such constraints. But Becker spoke of the need for the military to be open-minded to the advantages of, for instance, equipping small independent units with the latest in communications, robotics, AI, laser systems, electric vehicles and the like, to make them lethal and very mobile. He noted that that had worked already in Ukraine to some extent. What are your thoughts on that and where does that fit in with your concepts? I think the notion of uh, empowering small tactical units in ways that they can have an outsized influence will absolutely matter uh, for us, for other units. For our force design, that requires a level of training and a level of capability at a lower tactical level perhaps than when I was a younger officer and those were at this level a battalion level, now they may be at a platoon level. So the focus for us is not just the technical capabilities. It's the training. It's the Marine himself, herself, the level of decision-making that they can that they can have, the capabilities that we can deliver to them, and do they have the experience to make the right tactical decisions? That's, that's going to be the magic of it. So with your concept, I understand that you would see smaller groups of people further forward and engaging the enemy as the enemy advances or tries to advance. How can you protect them and, and can you give them a level of lethality that allows them to protect themselves? Nothing. I'd say whether a person or a vessel or an aircraft or a small unit operates independently. A key part of why we will always, well, why the Marine forces will stay forward is to remain, to, to be alongside the allies and partners who are already there also. We're not leaving that, that environment at all. We're staying forward. And we're staying forward in a way that can uh, paint a picture of what's in front of us and hopefully prevent the other side from collecting against us. Uh, all that. How do you say survivable there? Lower your signature. Be mobile. Operate alongside, again, allies and partners in a way that makes it difficult to, to target any particular unit and discern what their, what their intentions are. So the fundamentals, in other words, are, are not brand new. Uh, but the, the key for us is do all that in an expeditionary kind of environment, austere expeditionary environment. Are there pieces of equipment in terms of modern technology, be it communications, AI, or anything that didn't exist when you were a young officer that would be essential in future combat for the Marines? Yes, no question. In some cases, they existed in very small numbers or at very high levels, and now they're plentiful, if not uh, nearly ubiquitous, and they're at a much lower level than when I was growing up. Everything from uh, drones to optics to uh, logistics systems that were, that were and intelligence systems that were at a higher level are now available at the squad platoon level. 
all that is not complicating uh, the battlefield more, but it, but it requires a level of decision-making at a lower level that was held at higher levels before. But we're plenty capable of that, as long as we train in the way we're headed right now. Yeah. How important to a mobile military force is, say, weapons such as HIMARS, which is something the Australian Army has opted to acquire? Uh, for weapon systems uh, like HIMARS, that have pretty long range, the mobility of them we have found uh, in the Marine Corps to be a great advantage, especially if you can combine it, as in our case, and in uh, the Australian Defence Force looking in the same direction. If you can combine that with a with an aviation platform that can move, that can move it, either a helicopter or an MV twenty two or a C one thirty. Now you have mobile long-range precision uh, weaponry that you can relocate pretty quickly. Uh, gives you a great advantage. Right. You, you will clearly have been watching the progress of the fighting in Ukraine over the past year. In a broader sense, are there lessons from the Ukraine conflict for the Marines? There are a lot of them. I am guarded in a sense because uh, when a conflict is ongoing – yeah, it's good to be uh, a little bit patient in drawing firm conclusions when both sides are still at it. So uh, that said, though, I think because this conflict, in, in, in our view, started in 2014, not last year, there, there are things we can learn. Logistics matters. Small unit leadership matters. Uh, the ability to see the other side and understand what they are doing matters. The basics, camouflage deception, tactical mobility, all that matters. The importance of information, who can gain an advantage in moving it and hiding it and uh, distributing it matters. All those, I think, are, uh, are going to be lessons learned that we all our forces will apply, including us. Yeah. What are examples of challenges the Marines will face in a future conflict? Logistics, for sure. And that's, I think, not a change from, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. You skip past that step, you know, you're in trouble. So plan for logistics up front, especially in a, uh, in a, in a region like this where large distances to cover over great expanses of ocean, you have to plan for logistics early on. Aside from that, I think we have to work very hard at understanding each other's capabilities and how they can complement each other's which is why we're here. Try to get an update from the Australian Defence Force. Where are you now? Where are you headed? We have to understand uh, both of our capabilities and how we can mesh them together in a complementary way. Is the Australian Defence Force forthcoming on that? Absolutely, yes. Every question I've had, no hold back at all. Every capability that we're working on, every idea that we have laid on the table from... When you walk in the room, no hesitation. How big a role will autonomous systems play? That's to be determined. It's a capability where we're on the front edge of it, not sure where it will take us. But I, I would just highlight a, a couple areas maybe where it's getting less publicity, but is apparent to us may have great value. Back to logistics. Moving supplies. Moving patients. Moving medicine fuel, food, water. Is there any reason why we wouldn't envision a future where there's much more autonomy and predicting that and delivering that in the sustainment distribution? Why, why would we not rely on that? 
maintenance of equipment, all that. So some people focus on uh, weapon systems or um, flying plat- aviation platforms, all true. Uh, for us, if it can help us solve things like logistics, why would we not work hard on the application of autonomy to logistics right. at the tactical level? Yeah. Do you have partic- any particular concerns about how to protect your forces from autonomous weapons? No particular. I think like the Australian Defence Forces focused on air threats, focused on UAS threats, uh, whether autonomous or not, in other words. No particular uh, approaches uh, to counter autonomy very specifically, but it's clearly going to be an an area of capability that's growing. We will have to factor that in for sure. For more than two centuries, your Marines have gone to conflicts by sea. Given the effectiveness of weapons ranged against them, can surface warships survive at sea in a modern conflict? And might we be looking at perhaps using smaller, very heavily defended vessels to transport Marines? I think the way to operate uh, most effectively is in, in depth and in breadth. There's no single answer to the question, is a ship survivable? In our view, we will survive, we will operate forward because we will be distributed we are integrated with, if there is a partner nation, partner force there, we'll be integrated with them. We will be mobile. We will have a very low signature, difficult to detect, difficult to track. It's not the end of ships. Absolutely no. The uh, art of it, I think, will be finding ways so that the ship, as part of a formation, becomes harder to track harder to detect, harder to identify. And sometimes that's as simple as getting lost in clutter. How important will space be in the sort of operations you envisage for the Marines? And how difficult is it to establish and maintain effective command and control systems? Space is very important for all the reasons you would intuit, from timing to positioning to navigation, all all the aspects of uh, space-based systems, very important. We will have to, I think this is an area of contest between uh, nations where we'll have to figure out the rules of the road as in advance and work very closely with Australia, UK, other nations that have uh, space-based capabilities in terms of how to protect them, how to make sure that, uh, that we preserve the capabilities that, that we need for yeah. sure. And you've partly covered this, but will the experience of the U.S. Marines help the ADF incorporate space as a domain into Australia's future force design and operational capability? I think we'll continue to learn from each other for sure. We'll also learn and share ideas on redundant systems so that there's not a, you know, what some people would call a single point of failure. We're going to make sure there's enough redundancy built into that, enough resiliency built into that where there's no single point of failure. Yep. You've commented that uh, deterrence in the context of threats developed in the grey zone needs to evolve to involve or embrace more than just the military. Can you please explain that in a bit more detail? How do we develop an effective national deterrence? First of all, perhaps uh, open our minds up and think of deterrence in in ways that perhaps... uh the conventional sense of deterrence isn't quite adequate enough. 
By that, I mean the discussions we've had in the last couple of days, and you referred to it, things that happen in a gray zone, but below not an open conflict, but there's definitely a competition going on. You know, how does that play out in, uh, in the future? De- deterrence, in other words, uh, is I-, I would agree with the, the notion that it's much more than military. And you have to understand, to have a clear understanding of what the other side's goals are and that they may make incremental advances uh, half a step at a time. And deterrence may, for our for ourselves, may be uh, a calculus of how to prevent those half steps from happening. Yep. How important is leadership? Critical. Foresight, yes. I would add to that, sir, um, the ability to understand that the environment as you have it, that may not be the one that you foresaw and, and the flexibility to adapt within it. Because there's a lot of really bright people and great leaders. My experience is the advantage goes to that, that, that can adapt faster. In terms of potential flashpoints, Taiwan is an, an obvious one. Now, you've observed before that preventing a conflict depends on, on deterrence and, and taking out basically everything that we've got in the cupboard, I think was an expression you used. Could you develop that a little further? Deterrence in terms of Taiwan means changing the calculus that their premier has stated. In terms of uh, is the cost of taking that next step worth, worth it? Is it worth the pain? Is it worth the gain? We're going to need to use all the means of our, both of our governments to make sure that that uh, decision isn't taken, that the cost-benefit sort of analysis results in a not, not going to happen now. No, that's not worth it. Not, the, the cost is way too high. And it may mean applying approaches in a different way than perhaps conventionally we've thought of them in the past. But it's, an, it's a nonstop, constant pressure approach. This is campaigning. Yeah. It also, to some extent, must mean allowing the, a potential enemy to see what you've got. Sometimes, absolutely. Revealing a capability is part of it. You bet. General, thanks very much for your time. A fascinating discussion. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.